Well, hello, and welcome to the RCC Podcast. We are so glad you chose to join us today. It is our hope that you are inspired, challenged, and learn something new. Enjoy the message. Morning. Well, my name is uh, Stephen. Glad you have decided to join us. You're joining us in the middle of a series entitled, You Are Not the King. It's a study of the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And uh, what we're doing is we're looking at the, the main characters, uh, two kings, Saul and David, and a prophet priest, Samuel, and not just seeing the wisdom that's in there. Uh, it's not a bad thing to do that, but more importantly, seeing how 1 Samuel, this Old Testament book, uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the Old Testament is just the part of the Bible that's before Jesus uh, comes to earth. Uh, seeing how this book, written a few hundred years before Jesus ever came to earth, is really foreshadowing Jesus. And that's the most important way we can study and read this text this morning. We're in chapter 12, so if you have a Bible, you want to follow along, 1 Samuel chapter 12. And in chapter 12 is the turning point. And what happens in chapter 12 is the Jewish people cross a line. Uh, a line in the sand, whatever you want to call it. It's an invisible metaphorical line, but they cross it, and it's a turning point for the nation. See, uh, a few weeks ago, I taught on chapter 17. We're working backwards through the book. And I, um, in the story of David and Goliath, mentioned how when Goliath, uh, that famous character, when he got up and he started yelling at the Israelite people, he called them something. He called them the servants of Saul. And it was the first time in history that the Israelites had been referenced as children or as servants of a man. Up until then, they had been known as the children of, of God. Uh, of their God, uh, which is the God. But that reason that happened in chapter 17 is because of what happens here in chapter 12. And the first 11 verses are Samuel defending his time as leader of the Israelite people. He was uh, a prophet, so kind of the truth teller, uh, and had a human authority. He was the human authority over the Jewish people at the time. And he was also their priest, their spiritual leader. And so he mediated between them and God. Well, what's happening now in chapter 12 is they are going to uh, throw off human, uh, sorry, uh, God's authority as their king, and they're going to ask for a human king. And so in the first 11 verses, Samuel kind of lays out why he was a good leader, and he's kind of defending himself a little bit and saying, I was a leader of integrity, and uh, by and large, the Jewish people just agree with him. They said, you were. And then he goes through, and he lists out, starting with Moses in the desert, and then Joshua into the promised land, and the judges who uh, followed them. He said, this is how God has been faithful to you. But don't we know, even when God uh, is exceedingly faithful to us, we're not always faithful to him. And so what happens is even though God was faithful to them for hundreds of years, uh, they say this in verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And so they see 
uh, this King Nahash, I don't know if there's anything particularly incredible about Nahash other than that his army coming behind him was an army that looked uh, scary to the Israelite people. And so they said this time, instead of trusting the 400 years of God's faithfulness, what we want is a human leader. We want a human king. And so they uh, crossed this line of saying, we're rebelling against you, God, as our ultimate authority. Now, this is not unlike what you and I do in our lives when we uh, look at God or uh, Jesus and we say, we don't want you, Lord, to be ultimate authority. We want to be ultimate authority uh, in our own lives, or I want to be ultimate authority in my own life. It's amazing how one decision rooted in fear or comparison, whatever you think is happening here, uh, can completely dictate the direction of a nation. So they throw off God as king. Verse 13, Samuel says this, And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, who chose you, the people, the king whom you chose as opposed to God, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. What happens here? They get what they ask for. Ever had a moment in life when what you got, God gave what you asked for, and it ended up being the worst possible thing for you? You just kept asking. You kept asking because you thought you knew best, and so you just kept laying it out there, and you kept asking all of that, and then you got it. How'd that work out for you? Well, the Israelites get what they ask for, namely a king, and the king is set over them. And uh, having a king now, an earthly king over them, creates a new paradigm. And what it is is a covenant that the prophet priest Samuel here is about to lay out for them. He said, if this is going to be your king, then this is how it's going to work. Verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you, two things, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. And so here's the agreement. It's an if-then. If you do well, then it will be well. It's the carrot in the, uh, in the covenant. If, if you do good, it'll be good. If your king does well, it will be well. And so this is what's laid out to them. Now, there's a reference uh, that Samuel makes to himself about his old age in the first 11 verses. And I wonder, even as he's laying this out before them, if he knows what an impossible task he's laying out for them. <laughs> if you do well, it will be well. Even though I just explained to you 400 years of how God was faithful when you didn't do well. Verse 16 or 15 is the stick. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Notice in the first part in the carrot, it says, if you and the king do well, then it will be well for both of you. In the second one, it just puts the rebellion on the people. It says, if you do not do well, though, then it will not be well for you. And so God, or through Samuel, gives them two motivations, a positive motivation and a negative motivation. The positive, if, it's, if you do well, it'll be well. If you don't do well, the negative, then it won't be well for you. So what happens? Verse 16. Now therefore, stand still. Again, this is still Samuel speaking. Now therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. And I wonder, what's about to happen? Well, he tells him. Is it not wheat harvest today? 
Now, what that means is that what they're about to see was incredibly abnormal, right? More rare than 52-degree weather in December, abnormal. They're about to see a miraculous feed. He, he sets it up. He says, isn't it a wheat harvest? You know in wheat harvest, it doesn't rain and it doesn't thunder, not here in Israel. He says, I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great. Now, sometime after this, uh, there's going to be a prophet named Jonah, and he's going to be asked to speak to a people, uh, the Ninevites. And it's going to be said of the Ninevites that their wickedness was great. Their evil was great. The phrase here is almost the exact phrase. And what he is saying is this rebellion is a different type of rebellion. This rebellion is a type of like um, nation-defining rebellion, the type of rebellion that will define this country, this nation, for the rest of their time. There's going to be books in the Bible written after this called First and Second Kings. Those books were never supposed to be in there. They were never to have a king. Had they obeyed, those books would have never been written. This is the type of life-altering decision, uh, life-altering rebellion or sin uh, that, that like marks in this case, a nation, or for our sakes, or for our cases, sometimes a life. And so maybe you can relate to this. Maybe there's been a time in, in life where there was a, a sin that you feel like defines you. Or maybe you don't think it defines you, but everybody else thinks it defines you. And so you feel like you walk around with a scarlet letter, right? Or, or if, it's, if it doesn't look like on the outside, at least it's on the inside for you. And so either you or other people have defined you by a sin or a season of sin or, or, or a certain type of sin. And it becomes uh, overbearing almost, like a defining thing. That's what's happened here for Israel. A great wickedness. Greater than any things that have come before. Which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. In essence, in throwing off God's authority over you. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Notice, by the way, that 11 verses of being reminded of God's faithfulness, of the little carrot and the stick that Samuel had thrown out to them, did not move the Israelites at all. The first thing that moves them is a display of God's power and wrath. Isn't it true that sometimes in our lives we're not moved by God's love and his grace and his kindness, we're moved by the idea of punishment from him. We're motivated to change, not because of how much he loves us, but because of what we might fear he may do. With that thought, by the way, in the back of your minds, I want to proceed here. It's not a good thought. So God sends this thunder and this rain, and look what the Israelites do for the first time. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants, mediate for us, be our priest. You are our priest once. I know we just kind of rejected and rebelled against you, but will you still be our priest? Even though we've done this great evil, please, Samuel, mediate to God for us. Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. And these stakes are high, very high. This is what they see. 
at stake. Our lives, our very lives. Maybe they were remembering back to the times that the Israelites had rebelled before and God had had to take it out because he's a just God. He had to uh, take vengeance out against them and they're remembering that and they're going, no, 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 please, Samuel, save us. That we may not die for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king to throw off God's authority in our lives. So this is a corporate letter written to the Jewish people from an individual perspective. If you've ever felt like you had to plead to God that he wouldn't pour out his judgment against you, you can understand the prayer that they're praying here. But there's some good news in here. Samuel's a good priest and he's a good prophet, so he doesn't abandon them. Instead, he says this, remarkable words, by the way. And as much as Samuel in the Old Testament could understand a semblance of grace, it's revealed in this text. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. They have a lot of reasons to be afraid. They've sinned greatly. They've been exceedingly wicked. They've rebelled against God. They've thrown off his authority. The Ammonites, it apparently seems, are probably still coming. There's a lot of reasons for them to be afraid. And Samuel starts it off with, do not be afraid. Now, what he says next is even more remarkable. Do not be afraid. Why? Why shouldn't they be afraid? You have done all this evil. He doesn't diminish what they've done. He doesn't say, no, it's really not that bad. It's okay. Don't be afraid because uh, really what you asked for, it's not that big of a deal. Or, or you're innocent. He doesn't say that. He says, do not be afraid. You have done this. There is a complete acknowledge, acknowledgement of sin and an admission of guilt. And Samuel is putting it on them. You have sinned greatly and you have rebelled against God. But don't be afraid. Well, there's got to be a reason for that in here somewhere. Now he says this, which I think reveals a deep understanding from Samuel, uh, from Samuel, Samuel of the human heart. He says, yet do not turn aside. That word or phrase, turn aside, there is uh, similar to our phrase that we use for repent, which means to turn away from sin and to turn back from God. But here's the opposite. He's saying, don't turn aside. Don't turn aside from following the Lord. It's this mindset. Well, um, wherever the line of sin is, I crossed the line. And now that I've crossed it, I might as well just keep going. I might as well just keep walking. I, I've committed this sin, and so why don't I just uh, let one sin beget another sin beget another sin, and, uh, and we'll just go. And uh, eventually, maybe you get to a place, I don't know if age even matters, where you get to a point and you say, well, now I'm too far. <laughs> I've crossed the line and, and I've gone too far. Or, or maybe it's just a particular sin in your life and you've crossed the line once or you've crossed the line a hundred times or whatever it might be. And so now it's like, it's really not that big of a deal. I'm just gonna let it go. And, and eventually what it does, he's saying, is it turns us away from God and starts us on a completely different path away from him. And so the one turns into another. And Samuel's warning them of this. He's saying, don't let uh, this, this one defining sin uh, now set you on a path away from God. Don't, don't build an argument in your mind on why you can't turn back. He says, don't turn aside from, from following the Lord. He said, even in the midst of your great evil, serve the Lord with all your heart. 
Now, this sometimes is a paradox to us because we want to live in a black and white world that says that I'm either serving God and I'm doing right or I'm not. Samuel actually says, even though the sin is present, even though there's an admission of guilt, serve him. And do not turn aside after empty things. A synonym for the phrase empty things there is vain idols. Now, when we think of idols, we think of like, um, uh, you know, things made out of gold or whatever that we would worship or bow down to. Uh, really, in the New Testament, an idol is anything that gets the deepest worship of our heart. It's something that we begin to, to value highest over God. He says, don't turn aside. Don't let sin now be an excuse to, to pour your heart and, and to pour your deepest affections into something. He uses two metaphors that will not profit. So if you run a business or, or you work in business, uh, what he's saying is that there are, there are pursuits in life. You could fill in the blank on what they are or identify probably what it is in you that you can chase after. And here's what it won't do. It will not profit. In other words, you can work it, you can work it, you can work it, you can work it, and it'll never produce anything on the other side. Another metaphor he uses is, or it's empty. It's empty. You chase it, you chase it, you chase it, and it's always going to be empty. Empty heart, empty soul, empty life. And even when you get it, it'll still feel empty. He says, don't chase after these things. They can't profit. They're empty. They will never deliver. Verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people. Now we're getting into the motivation. Ah, but the motivation is interesting because here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say for the Lord will not forsake his people because they are made in my image, because they each have exceeding value, because they're important, because they're special, because they're whatever. It doesn't say that. God's grace here is not rooted in the recipient of the grace not. doesn't say, uh, because you, then I will. It doesn't say that. You know what it says? Something much better. He says, for the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great name's sake. In other words, you're not the king. You're not the king. And my grace or glory uh, uh, extended to you isn't going to be contingent upon you. This is really good news. It means that God's grace is rooted in something so much deeper, so much more powerful than how you or I act, that God's grace is rooted in his own pursuit of his own glory. And this is good for us. It's good for us because it's rooted in his name, his name, which is uh, above every name, which is unending and never changing. His name, which is woven in his character into everything and all of creation. God's grace is rooted in that. Oh, and this is really good news for us because it means it's not rooted in us or what we do or who we are. It says it has pleased the Lord. It makes him happy and joyful to make you and I a people for what? For himself. 
Now here's what's going to happen. Samuel's going to wrap this little section up. And what he's going to do is he's going to summarize what we've just seen and heard. Let's see how he does it. Moreover, over, moreover, as for me, Samuel is a good, he's a good priest. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. What does he say? He says, no, I've been given a job. And even though you've acted like this towards me, I'm going to act like this towards you. And so I'm going to continue to pray for you, Israelites, even though you've rebelled against me. I will continue to pray for you. I'll continue to mediate for you. I'll continue to be your, uh, uh, your uh, intercessory between you and God. He actually would consider it sin. Far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. He says this then, and I will instruct you, instruct you in the good and the right way. I'll be your prophet. I'll continue to tell you what it is that you should and should not do. So he says, I'll play those two roles continuously for you, priest and prophet. But then what he says is this, only, this is my request, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully. Serve him faithfully. Serve him without pause. Serve him without turning aside. Serve him without um, running after empty things that don't profit or deliver. Serve him faithfully, always faithfully. He says, that's what I would ask you to do. For consider, he says, serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. He says, let me give you a motivation for why. Look what he's done for you. Look what he's done for you. Then he says this, but if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. If you still do wickedly, if you don't live up to this covenant and agreement that we have made, if you don't do this, then what will happen? You and your king will both be swept away. But if you do well, if you do right, if you serve him faithfully, then you'll be okay. You'll be all right. I would submit that this is the best deal that Samuel could have negotiated as the prophet priest. It's the best deal he could have negotiated. You know what they deserve? Punishment. Death. They rebelled against God. And they basically told him, we don't want you anymore. We want a human leader. And Samuel negotiates this deal for them. And this is the deal that for many years, centuries, that humanity lived under. But here's what I would also submit. It's a bad deal. It's a bad deal. And here's why it's a bad deal. You can't do it. So what do you need? You need a better deal. Where are you going to get a better deal? From a better priest and a better prophet and a better king. And so Hebrews spends an extensive amount of time explaining how Jesus is a better prophet, a better priest, and a better king. And how Jesus comes and he gives us a better deal. And it's a different deal. 
Because even on this side of the cross, we do exactly what the Israelites do. We don't serve him faithfully. We run after empty things that do not profit or deliver. And according to Samuel's deal, that means we should be swept away. Gone. Forgotten. But he gives us a better deal. So what? What is the better deal? How does the new deal work? How does it work? Well, first, the deal works this way. And in John chapter 17, we see what's called the high priestly prayer. It's Jesus being a better priest and him mediating for us, which means you don't ever need another person to mediate on your behalf. You don't need an earthly priest. You don't need an earthly pastor. You don't need a parent. You don't need anyone to stand on your behalf between you and God. Jesus is now that priest. He takes Samuel's role as the mediator for any other human. That's the first part of the New Deal. Here's the other part of the New Deal that you don't have to be afraid. Even though you and I have done this evil and have rejected God, we don't have to turn aside from following the Lord. We can serve him with all our hearts. We don't have to chase empty things or prop that don't profit or deliver. But here's the best part. Even when we do, the deal is still good. See, what it says in 1 Timothy is that he is faithful when we are faithless. This whole deal was contingent upon him being faithful when we were faithful. But in the better deal, even when we're not, he still is. That the only thing contingent in the new deal is our belief, our acknowledgement of him as king. Uh, a f- friend of mine and I are starting a business outside the church, obviously, like something different. And uh, it takes a lot of negotiations. So we've negotiated with a lot of people in a lot of different ways on a lot of different buildings. And um, a couple weeks ago, we got an email about a potential deal. And it was one of those emails where we had to call each other and be like, did you see that? That is an incredible deal. Like, almost like joyfully laughable. That's a really good deal. It was amazing how just reading the email, like, did something in me that was like releasing chemicals. I was like, I feel happy right now. Like, this is a good deal. It's kind of deal I want to tell somebody about. Like, I can't believe that this is being offered. We don't understand the new deal until it somehow does something inside of us that makes us say, this is so good. Like, this deal is so good. It means this, that when other people or the enemy in your own brain makes you think, I've crossed the line, i got to turn aside, I can't go back, you can It means that when anyone tries to define you by a sin that has occurred or that is in your past, they're wrong. You, Christ's righteousness is counted to you. It means the only 
thing in the new deal that matters is have you stepped into it? It means that when you sin, you don't run away from the Lord. You don't turn out, you turn in. Why? Because he sees you with the righteousness of your king. What a deal! It means this. And Paul says it this way. He says, your best efforts are filthy rags. Not your worst efforts, your best efforts. It means every time that you and I still operate out of this mindset, that if I, then God, were living under the old deal. The new deal is because Jesus did, now I because Jesus lived perfectly. Now I'm seen in his perfection. Because Jesus died, now I am alive. Because Jesus took the punishment, I get his victory. That's a good deal. Take the deal. You ever watch Shark Tank and you're like, morons, it's Mark Cuban. Take the deal. He's got a billion dollars. You'll be rich. He's got all of heaven and earth. Take the deal. Take it. I don't even know what to say anymore. Let's pray. We hope you were inspired, challenged, and learned something new. For more information about our church, visit our website at redemptioncitychurch.tv. Have a great week.